Holy and gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Last week, we kicked off our summer sermon series on Micah 6.8, this verse that we just sang that teaches us how God requires us to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. For these next three weeks, we're going to dig a little deeper into the biblical concept of justice. Uh, I hope you will listen to our All I Know Is This podcast episodes with Dr. Ryan Bonfiglio. The one on justice will be coming out this week. And one of the things that he and I acknowledged in that episode is that these days justice is a word that often carries political overtones. But justice is not a Democratic or Republican concept. For us who are people of faith, it is first and foremost a biblical concept, which is why it's so important for us to understand what the Bible teaches us about justice. How do we understand justice as a fundamental part of what it means to be children of God and people who call ourselves Christians or disciples of Jesus? How did Jesus understand justice as a faithful Jew? We're going to start unpacking those questions today by looking at the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. This is a book that builds a bridge between the first and second parts of the Old Testament. The first section is sometimes called the Pentateuch because it contains five books. It's often also called the Torah, and it refers to the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, where we get the stories of creation and the patriarchs and matriarchs of our faith as well as the pivotal story of the Exodus, when God rescues the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and brings them through the wilderness to the Promised Land. The second section of the Old Testament, which includes Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, and 1 and 2 Kings, tells the story of how God's people learn to live as a nation, set apart by their belief in the one true God, And it tells of the people's many failures as they try to live up to their covenant relationship with God. So Deuteronomy builds a bridge between these two sections. It claims to be three speeches given by Moses to the Israelites before they entered the promised land, but clearly it's foreshadowing some of the foibles and failures the people will experience as they build their nation. Scholars now believe that Deuteronomy was compiled much later than Moses lived, actually at the time when Israel was threatened by the nation of Assyria. We talked about that last week. That was the time when Micah was writing. So the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says that Deuteronomy is most fundamentally an articulation of public theology. It uses these memories of Moses to make a case for political resistance to the domination of the Assyrian Empire. And it encourages the people of God to integrate their theology into their public life. So, with that background and with all that in mind, hear our passage today, which comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 10, verses 12 through 21. So now, O Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you? Only to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, 
to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his decrees that I am commanding you today for your own well-being. Although heaven and the heaven of heavens belong to the Lord your God, the earth with all that is in it, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your ancestors alone and chose you, their descendants after them, out of all the peoples as it is today. Circumcise then the foreskin of your heart and do not be stubborn any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribe, who executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and who loves the strangers, providing them food and clothing. You shall also love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. Him alone you shall worship. To him you shall hold fast, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and awesome things that your own eyes have seen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When the writer Anne Helen Peterson bought a house on a small island in the Pacific Northwest, she set about trying to make sense of the landscaping that had been done by the previous owners. The house had been built in 1905, it had had a lot of work done to it over the years, and it had changed owners a number of times, especially in the decade right before Peterson bought it. But before that, for many decades, it was owned by one couple. As she got to know her property, Peterson could tell those longtime owners knew what they were doing in the garden, particularly with perennials, those plants that come back year after year. There were huge rhododendron and azalea bushes that bloomed slowly and beautifully each spring. On one side of the house, there was some kind of vine that formed a 25-foot-tall evergreen privacy fence. It took some sleuthing, but Peterson finally discovered it was a climbing hydrangea that was at least 30 years old and probably a lot older. When she learned this, Peterson realized that those longtime owners had planted that vine knowing they would not get to fully appreciate it. When she was in the house for the first spring, she planted some flowers and tomatoes in the existing beds and containers around the property. They all started out healthy and strong, but then they turned sickly and puny. She finally went digging around in the soil to try to figure out why. That's when she discovered that the owners immediately before she brought the house, who had not lived there for decades but had used it as a second home for just a a few years, had taken all kinds of shortcuts. In various planters around the property, Peterson found empty detergent, orange juice, and soda bottles. There was a whole bag of potting soil that had been filled with plastic pots of annuals and then covered over with an inch or so of soil to make it look like they were growing out of the ground. No wonder the plants and vegetables she planted did not bear fruit. Instead of investing the time and energy and resources in rich soil to nurture healthy roots, these owners had reduced the amount of soil they needed 
by lining containers with impenetrable plastic. But all this taught Peterson a valuable lesson, that what we do, what we plant, how we move through the world, the shortcuts we do or don't take, the patience we will or won't practice, all of it has consequences. Deuteronomy chapter 10 is a plea for God's people to remember that what we do, what we plant, how we move through the world matters. It has consequences for us, for our neighbors, for our communities. This passage is particularly concerned with the covenantal requirement to do justice. It describes what motivates us to do justice, what we might think of as the roots of justice, as well as what it looks like to enact justice, actions we might think of as the fruits of justice. Just like plants, whether slow-growing perennials or one-season annuals, justice needs healthy roots in healthy soil to produce nourishing fruit and beautiful flowers. So Deuteronomy teaches us that there are two primary reasons that God requires us to do justice. One, because God is just. And two, because we have benefited from God's justice. The Lord is a God who executes justice. We are told justice matters deeply to God. And so as God's children, justice must matter to us. The Hebrew language has several words for justice, and each of them is in some way concerned with wholeness and integrity. God created the world and everything in it to exist in harmony. God created humanity to live with and for one another. When this wholeness is violated, either by individuals, think of Cain murdering Abel, or by political systems like the Egyptians enslaving the Hebrews, such injustice is deeply offensive to God. In the Bible, we read how God intervenes to restore justice, but the Bible also makes it very clear that God expects, actually the word used here and in Micah is requires, God's people to work for justice as well. In today's text, one of the reasons given for this is because of how the people have benefited from God's justice. You shall love the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Now, of course, we hearing this today, we're not literally strangers in Egypt, nor were the first people to hear this text. But what this means for us is that the work of justice comes from a place of empathy, I know that every one of us here today can think of a time when we felt the sting of injustice. Whether it was for big or small reasons doesn't matter. God calls us to connect with that feeling, the frustration and despair of experiencing a wrong that we can't make right by ourselves. Remembering these experiences in our own lives enables us to empathize with people who are experiencing injustice now, and empathy becomes a powerful source of motivation for us. 
So we are required to do justice because God is just and because we have benefited from God's justice. These are the roots of justice. But then what does doing justice look like? What are its fruits? Deuteronomy describes that God cares for the most vulnerable members of society, orphans, widows, and strangers, people far from home seeking refuge. And God provides for them in a tangible way, providing food and clothing. Orphans, widows, and refugees were particularly vulnerable because they had no standing, no ability to provide or advocate for themselves. They were dependent on the care of others. As we seek to understand what is our modern equivalent of the orphan, widow, and stranger, we can look for those who find themselves at the mercy of systems concerned with maintaining the status quo, even at the expense of people's health and well-being. Jesus was a master at finding such people at every level of society. And when he found them, he drew close to them and met their needs in tangible ways. This includes tax collectors and sex workers, the mentally ill and the physically disabled, religious leaders who questioned him, and military leaders who wanted to be healed by him, children and the elderly, Jews and those people the Jews hated. Jesus understood that justice requires empathy and that empathy requires proximity. It requires us to draw closer to those in need. Nelson Mandela was among many people in Africa and around the world who initially dismissed the seriousness of the AIDS epidemic. But later he changed his mind and became a passionate advocate for those living with AIDS. When asked what changed his mind, he replied, because I saw the children. Seeing children suffering with AIDS opened his eyes to the suffering of all those living with AIDS and led him to advocate for justice on their behalf. I hear something similar from those of you who volunteer at Henry Marsh Elementary School or with the Armstrong Leadership Program or Little Hands or Crossover or Acts or Risk. When you get to know people, when we see up close the results of unjust systems and policies on individuals, then we want to do everything we can to make it right. And fulfilling God's requirement to do justice not only bears fruit for those who are suffering, it bears fruit for those doing justice as well. It connects us with God, who loves and desires justice, and it connects us more deeply to our neighbor. Whether we are the one in need or the one working for justice, we all benefit from its fruits. As this passage says, keep the commandments of the Lord your God for your own well-being. Of course, we have to acknowledge that the work of justice can feel totally overwhelming. In the face of increasingly horrific acts of gun violence, public hearings trying to make sense of a violent insurrection, government officials who deny the reality of systemic racism, sexism, and oppression, it is so easy to feel like nothing we do, whether as individuals or as a church, will ever bring about meaningful change. 
When I'm feeling overwhelmed, I find it helpful to remember Nick Saban. Yes, that Nick Saban. Head coach of the University of Alabama football team, more than 250 wins, seven national titles. But before all those wins and titles, his first head coaching position was at Michigan State. He had a mediocre team that lacked confidence. Before a long shot away game with the powerhouse Ohio State, Saban consulted with a university psychiatry professor, Lionel Rosen, for advice on improving the team's mindset and morale. Rosen realized that the average football play lasts only seven seconds. So he told the players not to worry about winning the game. Just concentrate on each seven-second play. Ignore the scoreboard, the game clock, the sidelines, that Ohio State crowd, not easy to ignore, seven seconds. That's all that mattered. Well, the game started badly. By partway through the third quarter, Michigan State was down by 15 points. And at that point, Saban reminded his team to trust what he called Rosen's process. The quarterback, Bill Burke, remembers that in spite of being down by 15 points that late in the game, Concentrating on seven seconds at a time made it feel like they had an infinite amount of time to come back. And come back they did, securing an unlikely and dramatic victory. Doing justice is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment process of living out our calling to imitate God, the God of justice, and to care for our vulnerable neighbor. We are called to do that the very best we can in any given moment, like gardeners, tending plants whose fruits we may not see, but others may enjoy. And as we focus on the opportunity in front of us in any given moment, we must remember the most important game of all has already been won. Christ is risen. Death is defeated. There is no injustice on earth that will last forever. So trusting that, may we do everything we can to create opportunities for justice to take root and bear fruit, now and for generations that follow. Amen.